Hey, how's it going? This is Evan Jackson, video production director of New Life Church. Thank you so much for joining us for our podcast today. It's our goal to help you grow in your faith and discover all that God has for you. I hope you're encouraged, challenged, and inspired today. Enjoy the message. Hey, we're back into this series today. And I, I want to make sure that we understand that this is a connected series in the fact that we're spreading this sermon, this teaching series out over the summer, but Jesus gave it all at one time. So we want to make sure we, we, we include the connective tissue between these sections, okay? So what I'd like to do is just harken back to last week's message just a little bit to get some context. At the end of last week's message in chapter 5 of, of Matthew, Jesus made this incredible uh, and frustrating statement. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not even see the kingdom of God. And everyone went, oh, man. Oh, man. I'm in trouble. Yep. Yep. So that's how he ends it. And if, we, if you remember last week's uh, message, we talked about how the law is perfect and good, but it's also completely unattainable. So it's a good thing, but it's also our enemy. So Jesus affirms his word in the Old Testament, yet he comes and he fulfills the word in the New Testament because we are incapable. So understanding that, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the, the scribes and the Pharisees, those people who are really, really good at keeping the law, you're not even going to see the kingdom of God. And it goes right into today's message, right off the heels of that, okay? And the next week's message, I'm going to tell you right now, next week's message is going to come right on the heels of this week's message. So they're all connected. We've got to make sure we, we, we bring them all along with us, or it sounds like, you know, eight different sermons. When it wasn't, it was one, one sermon. Would you do me a favor? Would you bow your heads, and let's pray together. You're gonna, I'm going to pray for you, and you're going to pray for me. I got the best because I got about 100 people in here praying for me, and you only got me. But, Lord, thank you so much for this day. God, I pray for your people today, your body, your children, your sons, your daughters, that, Lord, that they would receive through the Holy Spirit what you want to say to them today. And, God, I pray that I would get out of the way and allow your word to speak the truth. In Jesus' name. So we have this, coming out of last week's message, we have this problem. Has anybody ever heard somebody say something like, along the lines of, well, I'm a pretty good person. Anybody ever heard of that? Like as if, like, like when you talk about heaven and hell and things like that, well, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. As if my good deeds I will put on the scale of justice, and my good deeds will hopefully outweigh my bad deeds, and then I'll get in to heaven. Okay? And that's, that's what we understand under a works-based theological system. And Judaism, in many ways, especially by the time we get to the first century, kind of made itself into that. 
and Jesus is about to blow it all up. You ready? So the big idea for this message is this. Living in God's kingdom means we must learn to deal with anger, lust, lying, and enemies differently than the world does. Jesus calls us to a higher standard. In the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus goes above and beyond what the law instructs. And I believe he does it for two reasons. He's going above what the law instructs, and I think he does it for two reasons. And here's the reason. So number one, because being the very word of God, he knew what the world was supposed to look like before sin distorted its beauty and complicated our understanding of morality. He's the very word of God, so he knows what it's supposed to look like. And two, he is showing us the complete futility of trying to earn our own righteousness by keeping the law. Because even if we are able to keep the letter of the law, you would fail to be righteous because of your heart. Memory experts talk about how if you want to increase your memory, you've got to use mental tricks in order to associate your memory with something that's stupendous or, or big. So, for instance, how many people ever have had a hard time remembering where they put their keys? Okay, I'm not a little good. It's good. Yeah. So what they say, you know, if you, if you come in the door and you typically put your keys down on the table, that's not memorable. But if you envision in your mind, I'm dropping my keys into a glass of milk on the foyer table, and it splashes over the edge, then when you go to say, where are my keys? You're going to say, oh, I remember I splashed milk on the foyer table. It's more since, I don't know why it works that way, but it does work that way. You know, when you... I got through Spanish class doing this. I don't know any Spanish. All I did was associate Spanish words with words that sound the same in English. And usually it was like bathroom humor that got me through Spanish. I'm just telling you, this way it was. I, just, I had to associate. I couldn't do it any other way. But it helps your memory when you associate it with something that is sensational. So in some ways, Jesus is about to go there. So let's get in it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. We're going to finish out chapter 5 today. So here we go. Coming right off of that section where it says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the, of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors. Do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. And here's the sensational. Here's the, here's the drop in the glass of milk. Ready? But I tell you, everyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to to hellfire. 
So if you were offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Then he goes on to say, reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on your way to the court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown in prison. Surely I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Moving on, verse 27. You have heard, it, uh, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I find this very interesting on one, in one respect. It doesn't, re- doesn't reference women here at all. <laughs> Guys, are you paying attention? He said, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, he's talking to you guys, he's talking to me. Interestingly enough, we are very visual, aren't we, men? We're, hey, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. It's, it's, it's revolutionary in our culture these days. Men are different than women. I know. I know. Right? Pete's like, boom, it's done. If your right eye, oh, sorry. Uh, But I tell you, everyone who looks upon a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Very graphic. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Next, 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife except in the case of sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And what he's, people always have our, people have a tough time with this one. What do you mean? I, a woman can't get married after, after she's been divorced and all that. I'm like, listen, <laughs> all right, if we're going to take that particular scripture and say that, then everybody in here better have one eye and one hand. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that this is not the way it was meant to be. It's not the way God intended it to be. And we're living in this, this realm of sin, and there, there's real implica- implications for the stuff that we do. And it's not how God intended it. Next one, verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to your ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. But I tell you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it's God's throne, 
or by earth because it's the footstool, or by Jesus, uh, by Jesus excuse me, by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head because you cannot make your one hair black or white. But let your yes be yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. We're going to talk about it a little bit later on the sermon, but those three statements of Jesus are highly connected. Lust, divorce, and promise keeping. They're highly connected. I've done numerous weddings, and what I don't tell them is to say this. Swear on the life. No, no. We don't do that. Swear on your mother's life that you will keep. No. We say, do you take this woman? And you say, I do. That should be enough. Let your yes be yes. Your no, yet your word be true. If you keep yourself, if you keep your mind right, your eyes right, your body right, and you could keep your word, there would be a lot less divorce. Keep going. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. There's a lot of eyes being poked out in this section. But I tell you, (laughs) don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks of you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. A lot of tough tough statements there, isn't there? And finally, as we close out chapter 5, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and uh, and pray for those who persecute you so that you will be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? Oh, man tax collectors. I mean, there's not much eviler than that. (laughs) That means that's what they were thinking. Even those awful tax collectors are good to people who are good to them. And if you greet your own brother and sister, what are you doing out out of the ordinary? Don't even Gentiles do the same? And then he says this statement. That is the whole point of this section. He says this, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yikes! That's a tough one. That's a tough one. All right. Let's break it down a little bit. Um, Craig Keener, help, uh, excuse me, Craig Keener helpfully explains the genre of Jesus' sermon on the mount. Six times in verses 21 through 43, 
Jesus cites scripture and then, like a good rabbi, explains it. This sort of wording he uses, uh, especially the words such as, you have heard. Remember, it says that over, you've heard this said, you've heard this said, you've heard this said, right? Was used by other Jewish teachers to establish the fuller meaning of a text. Although Jesus speaks with greater authority than Jewish teachers normally claim. Jesus is making a very important, uh, a very important statement about the sins of the reader or the, or the hearer. You can fake it all day. You can do all the kinds of things that are quote-unquote holy. But if your heart is bad, then your holiness is only skin deep and amounts to nothing. When he references in this, in this, we talked about at the end of the last sermon, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, he's making a very, very specific statement as he moves into this next section. He's saying this, you can cross every T and dot every I. You can swiggle the little yod over the letter. But if your heart's not right, it's meaningless. In Luke, we have this passage in chapter 15. It says, and Jesus is talking, he says, do you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? Now, why is he talking about digestion here? Because the scribes and the Pharisees had these rituals about how they would have to wash the vessels that they used to eat from. And, he said, and if you didn't wash it properly, or they would even say, if you don't wash your hands in a ritualistic way, then what, the, anything that was put in that bowl or was on those fingers would defile your whole body. And Jesus is like, that's garbage. That's, that's ridiculous. That's not even in, I mean, these are the rules that they put on top of the rules that they put on top of the rules. He's saying, what, what you put into your body doesn't defile you. If you ate food with an unceremonially washed hand and your food becomes quote unquote defiled, that doesn't defile a person. That's not, how, that's not how it's wired. That's not how I made it. Let me tell you how I made it. He says this in verse 18. But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a person. For, the heart, for from the heart comes evil thoughts. From the heart comes murderers. From the heart comes adulteries. From the heart comes sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, and slander. These are the things that defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile a person. So you can do all the sacred things. You can wash your hands all day long. And if you're spewing out garbage from the, from the well of your soul, that's, it's not going to do you any good. You have to clean the inside, and that's what Jesus is getting at. He's like, I came to fulfill the law so I could clean your heart. So I could clean your heart. If I were to ask you to raise your hand right now, I'm not going to do that, though. 
just on the outside chance. <laughs> ask yourself, how many people here today have murdered someone? Hopefully, not many hands would go up, if any. Right? That's, that's a good thing, okay? That's a good thing. But here's the thing. Nobody, unless you have a serious mental deficiency, nobody goes out one day and says, you know what, I just have a hankering for murder. Let me find some murder people I can murder. Nobody does that. That's not where it starts. That's not where murder happens. Murder happens here. Anger, jealousy, selfishness, bitterness. Stewing in a heart over periods of time leads someone to do an act of murder. It doesn't happen in the moment. It happens over time, and it's, and it's cultivated in a person's heart. It's not a daily temptation for most of us to go murder somebody. People in normal society interact, interactions don't murder one another. So you may feel comfortable checking off that Ten Commandment in the moral code. Feeling pretty good about yourself. You know, I haven't, well, you know, I haven't murdered anybody. I mean, you would be, <laughs> you would be surprised at how many times I've heard that. You know, when we're talking to somebody about, you know, heaven and hell, and he's like, well, I'm, I keep the Ten Commandments. I haven't murdered anybody. Well, good for you. I'm glad. That's great. And Jesus is saying, that's not where murder happens in the first place. All right? Jesus isn't satisfied with just don't do bad things. He wants our hearts to be clean so that we don't dwell on the hate that causes eventual bad behavior. It's the same thing with re retaliation. Eye for an eye is a letter of the law and feels fair. Well, they did this to me, so I want to do that to them. That feels fair, doesn't it? But God wants us to wash our hearts from the need for retaliation and be people who live in forgiveness and mercy. Now, some people will tell me, like, but Pastor, what, you know, they did something wrong. Are you saying that we should just let people go be, be free? If they no, that's not what I'm saying. Justice should be done. People should go to jail. They did something wrong. They should pay the price. But I'm, Jesus is not worried about the judicial system here. He's worried about your heart. I'll tell you what, man. There are people walking around your life who completely don't even know that you are letting them control your thought life. They're oblivious to it. Yet they are, they are constantly in your mind, tormenting you, taking you down, making you feel bad because of something that they said or did five years ago, you're still walking around. They could care less. They've forgotten all about it, and you're stewing over it. And it's causing bitterness and anger and wrath and all these things. We've got to free our hearts from the need for retribution. Yes, vengeance is mine, and don't you worry about it. I'm going to take care of it. I will repay, says the Lord, but not you. Let it go. That's tough. It's tough. 
I want to jump into the next, the next section. That, that, I didn't give you the title of that section. That title is called Murder and Retaliation. These things are, are, are built in the heart. Next section, I want to talk about those three connected verses. And N.T. Wright really connects them really well. So this section is lust and integrity. It says this, N.T. Wright offers some practical wisdom regarding how we should understand Jesus' teachings on divorce within the context of the Sermon on the Mount. He writes this, it is important to notice that in the present passage, the mention of divorce comes between two other issues, both of which are in some ways more basic. It may be startling, uh, uh, maybe stating, excuse me, maybe stating the obvious to point out that if people knew how to control their bodily lusts on one hand and were committed to complete integrity and truth-telling on the other, there would be fewer, if any, divorces. If we can control our eyes and control our, our lust, and we could be truth-tellers par excellence, divorce would diminish in our culture. Listen, I would just be happy. I wouldn't be content, but I'd be happy if divorce would just, be, would just reduce in the church. The last I checked, the divorce rate within the kingdom of God is higher than that of the world. That's sick. There's a problem with that. Okay? And I'm not talking about people who were divorced before they became a Christian. I'm talking about current people in a church, married to current Christians, and they're getting divorced because... Apparently, somebody couldn't control their lust or they couldn't control their, their trustworthiness. And that's a problem. That's a problem. We need to be careful. Now, what is, what is this adultery of the heart that we're talking about? I think some people have a really hard time with this because they're like, what, Pastor, what do I do? I mean, do I just put blinders on or, you know, what do I do when it comes to, and guys, I'm kind of talking to us women, if you have an issue with this, listen up. But the idea is like, no. Listen, God has made men as visual people. You will, guys, you will notice beauty. Okay, you will notice beauty. Okay, listen to me very carefully. Lust is the second gaze. So I'll just give you a for instance. Walking down the street, beautiful woman. That second gaze, that's lust. Because that plants that seed in your heart. That second gaze is not just, it's something that goes into your mind and says, okay, and starts developing more mental activity than it should. That is lust. You understand me, guys? Okay, so you're going you're gonna to see and you're going to recognize beauty, and that's okay. But that second gaze it's vitally important for us to maintain our moral integrity. And this doesn't just happen walking down the street. This happens by clicking through the Internet. Okay, so we got to be careful. But divorce would be much less if we could control our lust and control our trustworthiness. Divorce normally happens when lust and lies have been allowed to grow up 
like weeds and choke out the fragile and beautiful part of marriage. Plucking out your eye and cutting off your hands are deliberate exaggerations, but they make the point very forcibly. What he commands us to avoid is the gaze and the lustful imagination that follows the initial impulse. Likewise, determine resolutely to tell the truth to yourself and to your spouse. These two, between them, will set off, uh, will see off, uh, me, will see off most of the challenges that even a hard-pressed modern marriage will face. Control your flesh, the impulses, and keep your word. Okay, another section: love and hate. In verse 43, he says, you've heard that it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's important, not to, uh, it's important to note that often in Jesus' teachings, when he refers to the law and the prophets, or like we said last week, the Old Testament, he will say, it is written. But in this section, he talks about, you've heard it said, right? There's a difference in there. But he's very clear in this section that he's talking about the teachings of the connected tissue of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not just Mosaic law that he's talking about. He's talking about what the teachings around the Mosaic law are. Because he says, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, I went and looked for it. There is no place in the Bible where it says you're allowed to hate your enemies. I looked in the Levitical law. There's no place where, it's, where, the, where God says it's okay to hate your enemies. I mean, he does a lot of wiping out of enemies in the Old Testament. <laughs> but it's, there's nowhere in the Bible where it says you could, that it's good to hate your enemies. The closest thing we were able to get to was Leviticus chapter 19. And it says this, verse 17. You should not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What does it do? It omits what you should do with your enemy. That's all it says. So rabbis had taken that to say, you should be careful to love your Jewish brothers and sisters, and it's okay to hate anybody who's Gentile or, or Samaritan or any Roman overlord. It's okay to hate them. And it's, Jesus said, it's not okay. It's not okay. I mean, look what he says about the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Levite and the priest didn't stop to help the injured man, but a despised Samaritan did, and Jesus says, we should be like that guy. So don't be like the scribes, don't be like the Pharisees, don't be like the priests and the Levites who walked by an injured man. Be like a Samaritan. <gasps> Shocking. Be like a Samaritan who stopped and aided his quote-unquote enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who, uh, those who harass you. Jesus is calling his disciples to understand that all of humanity are God's children and deserve love, respect, and care. He sends the sun on the rain, in the rain on both the Jews and the Greeks. When we talk about sun and rain, we always, we always think about that as a good thing, right? What happens when you get too much sun, though? 
get sunburned. Well, I do at least. You get a drought. What happens when you get too much rain? You get a flood. So he sends all this stuff. Natural processes of the world go on everybody. Sinner and saint, believer and unbeliever, neighbor and enemy alike. Colossians 3.11 says this, In Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, that should mark a Christian who is part of the kingdom of God. That's what it should mark. Our, we should be marked as people of compassion to our brothers in the room and to the ones who hate us. Ouch. We should, be, we should be marked with kindness, humility, gentleness. And here's the one that really hurts. And I don't know if I can say it. Patience. I got it out. Patience to the ones in the room who love you and care for you and to the ones who hate you. He knows that he's calling us to an unattainable goal. That is why he says, I will send to you my Holy Spirit. The helper. The spirit of truth. John 16. I still have many things to tell you. This is Jesus speaking. But you can't bear them now. <laughs> After listening to this, I can understand what he's talking about. I got tons of stuff I want to tell you, but man, I don't think you can handle it. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. I want all the truth. I want all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit is given to us for us to understand the truth that Jesus wants to pass down. Understanding is great. Doing is a whole different thing, isn't it? How many people find it hard to apply their knowledge into what we would call Wisdom. Wisdom is the act of applied knowledge. You take the knowledge you have that the Holy Spirit gives you, and wisdom is walking in that knowledge and acting it out. But the Holy Spirit is not only a source, a source of knowledge, but he's also a help. He gives us the power to be able to do what is unnatural to our sinful nature. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What is he talking about there? Oh, he's just talking about preaching. Nope. Mm -mm. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about your life. He's talking about how you live your life. You will be an example. You will be uh, my witnesses of truth. I'm going to empower you to do the things that I've told you, even though they're really hard. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be salt and light and a city on the hill. We can love our enemies and control our sinful flesh from the inside out, from a heart that is clean before God. So I'm going to give you one last statement here and we're going to be done. God has given us two things to help us in this thing we call keeping God's word, right? We keep God's word, his direction, his way, his yoke of teaching. He's given us two things. Number one thing he gives you, we just talked about it, is the Holy Spirit. He gave you that to not only inform you of truth, his truth, but also the power to live that truth out in wisdom. And the second thing he gives you is each other. He gives us the church. I'm picking on the guys a lot today. Guys, forgive me. But I'm going to help you out here for a second. I mean, this is, this is the part where I help you. If you're having a hard time struggling with lust, the best thing you can do is to receive the knowledge that that is, that is, a, that is a problem in your life. Go to the Holy Spirit for strength to overcome it, and then go talk to somebody that you can trust, One, another man, not another woman. Go to a man in your church and say, listen, I want, can I trust you? Can we keep this? Make sure you know it's somebody who's trustworthy. Don't go to like the town gossip and tell them you have a problem with lust. Don't do that. There's none of those in churches. You know what's funny? One of the number one things that the New Testament tells the church of the day to stop doing is gossiping. That's the one number one thing that, guys, just stop talking, geez. Anyway, I digress. But go, go to another man that you can trust and say, listen, I'm struggling with this. Can you help me to stay accountable? I need an accountability there. I need somebody who knows my struggle that can walk. We should be a band of brothers, guys. Stealing that from somewhere. We should be a band of brothers that can say, yeah, I'll, I'll walk through that with you. I'll walk through that with you. And now, ladies, I am not a lady. And I don't care what anybody in our culture says. It's not going to change tomorrow. I don't know the struggles, all the struggles that women go through. But I'm telling you what, God gave you two, two powerful tools to conquer those difficulties in your life. He gave you the Holy Spirit. And he gives you the church. Use them. And you will have the victory. And the last thing I'll say is this. You're going to mess up. Ugh, you're going to mess up. All we like sheep have gone astray. There's none righteous, no, not one. These are completely unattainable things that Christ, and he goes, you know what? That's true, but I got you. I got you. My righteousness, I cloak you in my righteousness. And I give you my spirit. Lord, thank you for this time. We can be in your presence. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy that you've taken these, uh, you fulfilled these laws 
by taking them on yourself, the punishment on yourself. But Lord, you want us to live like we were created to live in freedom and, and love and compassion and care, not in lust and anger and frustration and divorce and, and all these things. You want us to live how you created us to be. The only word I can think about, think of when it comes to that is this concept of thriving. You want us to live this life and you want to thrive in this life. So God, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to identify the areas in our hearts that need to be brought in line with your design. And help us to use the tools that you've given us, that is, the Holy Spirit to, to, to give knowledge, but also to empower wisdom and each other to help us along this life. Lord, I thank you for each and every one of my brothers and sisters here. Whether I know them well or whether this is their first time in our fellowship, Lord, if they are in Christ, they are, we are all citizens of the same kingdom and we're brothers and sisters. I thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that you would go with us today. Empower us by your spirit to be the people that you've called us to be. A light of the world, a city set in the hill. Amen.